Hello, hello. Welcome back. This is Post Poet Pop. I'm your host, Ken L. This is the second episode of 2024. We are in February. It is also episode 25 overall. I like the idea of infinite conversation. I think ever since I read that title of Maurice Blanchot's book, and the book, of course, I, and I say that to say that there are those conversations where you go back and think, why didn't I ask that? And you know, you basically dive into the branches of it all, that an infinite thing becomes so in the form of your thinking about it. Could be that that's what regret is, a branch of the infinite. Anyway, today we're featuring a conversation with the poet, teacher, artist, third culture talent that is Christina Ernie, who is the author of the new book, Elijah Fed by Ravens, just published by Arizona's own Solemn Literary Press. I met Christina right here in Louisville, as she joined a writing group I'm a part of called the Sublimity City Collective. But we conducted this conversation via WhatsApp voice messages because she lives in the future in Shanghai, China. And well, it's just easier that way when you're that many hours apart. Basically, each day I would wake up to answers to questions that I asked Christina, and each day I think she woke up to questions from me. So this is truly a collaged interview, and we were bridging time, which I find kind of beautiful. Christina is not only the author of Elijah Fed by Ravens, which we will discuss in depth, but she also recently directed her first play and she's busy working on more books. So stay tuned to whatever Christina does because you won't want to miss it. This conversation means a lot to me, not only because I think Christina is a generous, kind and attuned and bright person when you're around her, her energy's pretty magnetic, but because she's a good weirdo out there picking apart what Christianity gets wrong and doing it all from the metaphorical inside of the institution. That seems difficult and admirable to me, and you'll hear us talk about that. But as infinite conversation would go, I wish I would have asked her about living in Sierra Leone, and about why she likes taking public transportation so much, and about what it must have felt like to give birth to a child in the middle of completing her MFA graduate degree. I didn't ask those things, but you'll get to hear the things that I did ask, and the things that she did say, and we'll keep the infinite ongoing right here with Christina Ernie on Post Poet Pop. Thank you for listening.
Walk us through the origins of Elijah fed by ravens. Now, if you can, even for my own ignorance, uh, I was raised uh, in the Catholic Church, which can be a really tough environment in terms of obviously coming up at kind of the ages that we are with the scandals across the globe with priests. And in general, I think poets are not overly religiously inclined people. And you seem to be like a very cool and admirable religiously inclined person. For instance, a person who supports abortion rights and is against the death penalty and is in the interest of a free Palestine. And yet, on paper, it would seem like you shouldn't be. The easiest way to talk about it, I think, is like to talk about where I sort of was in my life when I started writing the poems. So we just moved from Indiana, where we'd been living for a couple years, back to Korea. So I've been sort of like back and forth from Korea my whole life. I grew up in Korea from age three until 18. And then I went to college in the US in Kentucky for four years. And then I got married right out of college. And we moved to, we lived in Indiana for a year. And then we lived in Korea for six months. We taught English and then and then we lived in Sierra Leone, West Africa for six months. And then after that, I, we moved to, I got into grad school um, in, at the University of Arizona. So we moved to Arizona for two years. And in the middle of that uh, experience, I had a baby. And so in between year one and year two of my MFA, I had a baby. So that was kind of a, a little bit of an atypical MFA experience, but made it through. and. <laughs> somehow was able to still graduate and finish my thesis and everything. But then after that, we were like, well, crap, we got to get, you know, real jobs. So we went to, we moved to South Korea and uh, taught for four years at a school in Taejeon, which is like a city that's two hours south of Seoul. And I had two more kids and also was teaching full time. And then I was really burnt out after that. So I took uh, a year off after my third child was born and we moved back to the States, but then it was really difficult to find work. And so for my husband, and so we ended up back in Korea again in 2016. And so that was like, that move back to Korea coincided with like the rise of Donald Trump in the United States. And so we were in Korea as all of this political rhetoric was ramping up and there was a lot of talk of, I don't know, North Korea was getting really riled up and it was in the news all the time. And I started having like pretty bad anxiety about, I don't know, just about everything and about the state of the world. I was in like a really rough 
place. Um, I hadn't really wanted to leave, even though Korea really feels like home. I hadn't wanted to leave. I liked my job that I had in the U.S. before we left. I liked the school I was teaching at. And it was really a difficult, I don't know, it was a really dark place. And so I started getting sort of obsessed with the stories in the Old Testament about Elijah and I just loved the phrase Elijah fed by ravens. It's one of the titles of that section in the Old Testament. And I I started like almost like obsessively reading those stories. And because I think I was in such a like just spiritually bereft place, I felt like those stories really resonated in some, like I felt like I really identified with the sort of desolate space that Elijah finds himself in in those stories and I don't know became really fascinated about the idea of like sustenance coming to a person from such an unlikely source and also from such a I don't know a source that is typically demonized or taboo or negative um you know crows and ravens and blackbirds and um, always have this like kind of negative stigma attached to them. Uh, I sort of became fascinated with like interrogating those stories and using those stories as like a and the imagery from those stories as like a a way to sort of help my help me be able to express my own spiritual frustrations and one of the things like growing up as growing up in a Christian family and growing up in inside of like organized religion. I grew up non-denominational, so I didn't have like necessarily a strong tie to a specific denomination, but um, my family is very deeply religious and I have very strong like religious leaders in my family even. Like my grandparents are have been major spiritual influences in my life and both of them are incredible preachers and deeply deeply spiritual people and people with just so much integrity and so I I feel like within that context within my own family and with certain people in my family I felt like a lot of permission to ask a lot of questions about my faith and felt permission to do that so I don't feel like you know but from an organized religion standpoint I don't feel like the the church is is traditionally very accepting of people asking a lot of questions. So poetry is like, has always been, I don't know, a space where I can feel freedom to explore questions that might not have answers, which I think is at the foundation of almost all actual faith and belief is questions without answers and being like coming to terms with mystery and coming to terms with awe and feelings that I think that's the great tension in with religion is that we come to our religions of the world with the desire for answers, but really all we're ever really going to get is a lot of quest- more questions. And I think a, a spiritual life, a, a life that is grounded in spiritual practices doesn't necessarily have to be overly religious, but it is a life that's steeped in like seeking and desiring to find something and so the poems became this like space where I could use a sort of foundation of these stories that have sort of formed the foundation of my 
the development of my faith life and use them to be able to ask some of the questions like where does our sustenance come from when we are seeking for something in a desert place like where do, is is the sustenance going to come for us like does it come it came for Elijah but is it going to come for us and what does it look like for me and so the speaker I think like pretending to be Elijah or pretending to be the angel who's speaking to Elijah in those stories like allowed me this ability to to explore those questions and give myself permission to do that. So I think it's so interesting that you said that poets are not overly religiously inclined people and I think in general I agree with you but to some extent I think like from an organized religion standpoint for sure and I would just say that I think poets tend to be very spiritually inclined people, but not maybe very religiously inclined people. And I feel that tension in myself more and more, especially as I get older and older, and I feel less religious, but maybe even more deeply spiritual. I do still identify as a Christian, even though there's so many things about Christianity that, and most of them are like political affiliations uh, with Christianity that make me feel uncomfortable. I think sometimes that can be problematic for people because I think there are Christian people, even people maybe even my own, even in my own family or people that I'm friends with or in community with that would want me to be like a little more palatable <laughs> from a from a religious standpoint, but I I think like to me poetry is is its own kind of church that's teaching me a lot about God and a lot about all all sorts of things about God from poets from all different kinds of backgrounds and I think I find poets to be deeply like faithful and curious and kind and questioning and people who have deep sense of awe and to me that's like that's what that's what we have in common and to me that's very much like the foundation of a, a life of faith
Trade one ten percent. They had you back when you was down. Don't forget, hold away, holy ghost, bullet ricochet. Took some time to pray. When I'm in the streets today, make the devil stay away. Ain't got a fake, but you're blocking all your blessings when you're lying about your age. I can feel the spirit moving when I'm lighting up the stage. Who listening when you pray? It just depends on your taste. She said, Tell me where you running when that kitty ain't as warm as it was. I don't care who you praying to. I can pray you believe and you see what you seek is underneath that kingdom come and make them scream. Amen. From the congregation, I need to spray tags for my. And when they ask me where I'm headed, hella heaven, see those facets straight to Mars. Look at God. She says, Good morning, wake up, wake. Good morning, wake up, wake. She says, Good morning, wake up, wake. Wake up, wake up and get yourself to church. Elijah fed by ravens. One. Even the whisper leaves the black feathers inchoate. Rustled jump leap gathering another stick, a hope caught there under first scuffle. Feathered eyes, feather sore, the days waiting, days gone. Before the raven comes, yawn and brook the tiniest releve of pebble. Cave, anger sifts, shifts, no vapor of it left. Elijah opens nocturne of hunger, a secondary mouth. Two, black feather, black mouth, black teeth, black shine, open black, black cave, ripples in black brook, black water, black thoughts, black sunshine. Back burns black to the rock, black underside of leaves, black feather, black feathers, black flight, black shine of feathers in morning light, black grit of black nails, scrape of black rocks, the black of black moss. The future is figment, so eat up given bread, lift up another head. What is sustenance? Passed from black beaks, black bread feeds a black fire in our belly, backed by a black and holy God. One thing that, that in part two, you get into this anaphora of black. And I'd like to explore that, uh, considering... Whenever, whenever I see black, right, it's, it's very hard not to associate it with many, many things that are loaded with those associations, uh, including racism, et cetera. But here, this is more like, what, there were so many ravens or that there was so much anticipation from this sky gazing uh, that now all of these things are, are turning black and that this is both a hopeful and frightening moment and how I'm assuming like hoping that something you either dreamed of or caught a message of, or, you know, uh, God said to you that it changes your reality and your gaze. 
The first section of the poem is an acrostic, and actually several of the poems in the book are acrostics, so the title of the poem forms the starting letters of each of the first lines of the poem and really is a little bit of like a tableau or like a, a painting of the scene as I imagined it with some of the themes of the book introduced, the waiting and the opening of the mouth uh, to be fed, the cave. Some of those sort of like core images and core symbols of the book are are introduced in that tableau, as well as some ideas like nighttime, like the nocturne and the sort of transformational black feathers at the beginning, and as well as hope. The future is figment. So eat up given bread, lift up another head. What is sustenance? And, you know, I, I really enjoy this, this play between those end words of figment and sustenance and how hope or keeping something alive, which is to say moving into a future, which is never actually here is both imagined, but also that thing that sustains while you wait. That's another thing that uh, is definitely like a, influenced by Buddhist teachings and the idea of being present in the moment and waiting and hopeful, um, taking what you've been given in the moment and not hoping for things that aren't necessarily there and putting a stock in a future that is just a figment at that moment. Uh, I had this thought earlier, um, but the idea, my, I mean, a, a major practice, spiritual practice that I'm constantly trying to discipline myself to is gratitude. This was one of the first poems that was published, actually, of this work. It was published before I left Korea and moved back to the States. And it was selected by Joy Priest to be published in Yamasi. And it was one of my first sort of big publications and very cool and sort of, I think, cosmic that uh, I've ended up getting to know Joy as a mentor and as poet in real life, not just as somebody who picked my poem when she was in grad school for this magazine. So that feels very cosmic that that's uh, happened. She sort of has in some ways played a role inadvertently in helping me think about the meaning of the use of black in the second section and the sort of like, I guess, like paused status of Elijah in this, you know, waiting by the brook. The, I, the use of the word black was really shaped by poets like Joy Priest and Natasha Oladakun and Cole Arthur Riley, who writes uh, black liturgies and their sort of interrogation and articulation of the problematic use of darkness, blackness, you know, to equate with evil, things that are dark, things that are black, like these sort of binaries of the dark and the light are just so pervasive in the language of the Old Testament and the New Testament, and we just use them all the time. And probably a lot of white Christians, especially without even thinking, you know, like, oh, he, he washed me white as snow, you know, like the idea of being purified from our sins is always uh, equated with 
whiteness or lightness. And so for basically since I started writing these poems, maybe even a little bit before, um, and doing my own sort of reading more deeply into anti-racist language and wanting to educate myself on the ways that these types of ideas and racism is baked into and embedded in so much of the language that we use. So I think in this particular story, that is in, in some ways already being interrogated by that the presence of the ravens in the story. The idea of kind of, of calling God black and at the end, uh, feels right and good in the poem and the idea that like this transformation happens in the darkness his sustenance and hope comes to him in the darkness from like the actual vehicle of uh, a black body um, black feathers to me that's something to be celebrated and honored and i'm hoping that readers will it will trouble the waters a little bit with readers but i really owe the thinking and the homage to you know people who had have better articulated that uh those ideas than me <laughs> Here's a curious celestial phenomenon. Let's all get down. We got to have what? We got to have what is love. What is the black star? Is it the cat with the black shades, the black car? Is it shining from very far to where you are? It is commonplace and different, intimate and distant, fresher than an infant. Black, my family thick like that strapped molasses. Star on the rise in the eyes of the masses. Black is the color of my true love's hair. Stars are bright, shining, hot balls of air. Black like my baby girl stare. Black like the veil that the Muslimina wear. Black like the planet that they fear. Why they scared? Black like the slave ship gully that brought us here. Black like the cheeks that are roadways for tears. They leave black faces well traveled with years. Black like assassin crosshairs. Blacker than my granddaddy armchair. He never really got no time to chill there. Cause his life was warfare. See, on the front lines of blacks, it's all there. Black like the perception of who are welfare. Black like faces at the bottom of the well. I've been there before to bring the light and heat it up like Lacosina. Like like Make what I imagine happen, but maybe I'm just a dreamer. I love rocking tracks like John Coltrane, love Naima. Like the student, love the teacher. Like the prophet, love Khadijah. Like I love my baby features. Like the creator, love all creatures. Who are knowledge, truth, and peace seekers. We on point like heat seekers. Targeting the black marketing strategists. Run up on them with the heaters. Everybody following with no leaders. Feeling like we killing ourselves because I know they can't Feed us, it don't stop till we complete this. Keep this fly. There's so much to life when you just stay black and Blacker die. Blacker than the nighttime sky, a best star in July. Blacker than the seed in the blackberry pie. Blacker than the middle of my eye. Black like Fela, man cry. Some man want ask who am I? I simply reply that you and I. V E R S A L magnetic. Work to respect the angelic. Climb the mountain top and tell it to the valleys enveloped. You're full of big chat, but you're not know me. I'm dark like the side of the moon you don't see when the moon shine newly. You know who else is a black star? Who? Me. You know who else is a black star? Who? Me. You know who else is a black star? Who? We. And we be shining and shining. But we rhyming and rhyming. We be shining and shining. But we rhyming and rhyming. Now everybody hop on the one. The sounds of the two is the third eye vision. Five side dimension. The eighth light is going to shine bright tonight. It's the third eye vision. Five side dimension. You know the light. Go from the dark. The other way is ass backwards. Absurd. Make you want to crow like a blackbird. That's right. You living from your first day to your last night. Sometimes you show your ass like lint on your clothes. When you froze in the black, black light. light. Dead that. Before you get your head wrapped. Like Bob. We 
see through your voodoo just like he's by you. You dealing with the black magic. Try to civilize you. Not walk on by you. Like Sybil. Lies to get you blacklisted. It'll be unlucky for you like a black cat. A panther. Revolution is the answer. That's what we need. Greed like my people like a cancer. Chew and The black people unite. Let's all get down. Now everybody hop on the barn. The sounds of the two. It's the third eye mission. Five side dimension. The eighth light is gonna shine bright tonight. Everybody hop on the one. The sounds of the two. It's the third eye vision. Five side dimension. The eighth light is gonna shine bright tonight. It's the third eye vision. Five side dimension. Equaling up to eight lights shine bright. <laughs> Take us through what a typical day looks like for you. How do you schedule your things, your life? You know, where does writing fit in? I know you're a really busy person and you don't seem to stop. It seems like from my vantage point, you have a ton of energy and I admire that, especially with all that you have to take care of, including yourself. Well, I have, uh, I have three kids. My oldest is in eighth grade and then I have a seventh grader and a fourth grader. So in some ways, like the pace of life and, you know, the like daily care that goes into parenting is like a little bit less as they've gotten older like they can you know do so many things for themselves but so much of life and our schedule still is like impacted by you know what they're doing even though one of the things that's nice about being here in shanghai versus in the states is that they can basically bike wherever they need to go or walk wherever they need to go on their own. Like we don't have to drive them anywhere, which is really nice. Um, but they all have a lot of stuff that's going on. Like we, we rock climb and um, we have a gym that's kind of close by to, to where we live. So we bike over there a couple times a week. My kids take like climbing lessons with a coach there. And then my husband and I climb while they're getting lessons. And then um, my kids play volleyball and different things like that. So there's lots of, you know, stuff going on. But um, if I'm working, um, I'm a high school teacher. So uh, a lot of my daily schedule is impacted by that. I wake up in the morning and if I get up early enough, which has gotten harder to do as I've gotten older, <laughs> I used to be way more disciplined about like waking up early before school and reading or writing before school. I think I felt like more of a necessity to do that when my kids were really small um, because like every minute of time when they were awake was sort of taken up by caring for them. Um, but now uh, that I don't have that now that they're a little bit older, I don't have that same sort of like constraint. So I've gotten less discipline about waking up early, but um, get up, you know, get ready for school, get everybody breakfast, get myself breakfast. And then I can walk to work, which is really nice. It's about a 10 minute walk. So we walk, I walk to work. I teach uh, creative writing and I teach a sci-fi lit class and I teach drama as well. I'm really busy all day uh, planning and teaching those things. But I'll say that my, uh, I don't know, I'm really inspired by the things that I teach. And I love, I, I, I feel that that's a very like creative space for me. Um, I often write alongside my students. I'm like stimulated by the things that they're bringing to the conversations around the literature we're reading. And then also they, I don't know, I, I, I find that space to be really stimulating to my creativity so if I do have time during the day sometimes I'm I'm literally making you know art alongside them or um, it's something that I'm thinking about that then I can you know turn to later and then after school uh, sometimes go climbing 
uh, at our little gym that we found here in Shanghai, which we love. We go on a walk, uh, sometimes cook dinner. There's a grocery store we can kind of stop by on the way home to pick up ingredients for dinner, make dinner, and then help the kids with their homework. And in the fall, I also I directed my first play, so I wasn't getting home until pretty late because I had rehearsals after school as well. But that was also a very creative experience and really, really powerful to kind of be experimenting with making something in a new medium. And then I'm, I'm also as I've gotten older, it's harder for me to stay awake. I used to be more of a night owl, but. Um, I'm pretty tired from just teaching all day, so I I always read before bed. So typically I read fiction before bed, and then uh, poetry is sort of being read either in the morning if I have time or scattered through the day. We live in kind of a, a more suburban-ish part of uh, Shanghai. We live in the Pudong side. The Pushi side of the river is like much more. I don't know. There's a lot more like you know old style. It's the older part of the city across the river, and so there's more like cool coffee shops and like lanes and restaurants, and it's like much more hopping. Pudong is more city suburbia sort of. Lots of good walking and like tree lined you know avenues and stuff like that, but not as many, not as much stuff. So we do a lot of like walking. We have our kind of favorite like. Like noodle shop we'll go to on the weekends called Sifang Romian, um, which translates apparently to like private beef noodles, <laughs> but it's uh, like northern Chinese cuisine and it's really delicious.
Mountain of the Lord, 1 Kings 19, 9-13 How many times can we pass by? Open years, Elijah, into the day before the crows, your own red creek bottom, dry stone fears that you can't hear us. Elijah, wait with your back to the hurricane. We are moved to what burns you. Oh, get your head out from under the rock. Note small differences in temperature, the hair on your arms, seismic, standing up again like it did the last time. Isn't there always a last time? Note the way the air stills and the ravens become contemplative. What they question, how they know us, Elijah. They have reached into their tiny minds and have bowed down already ever dark, even on this forsaken and holy transom. Here we are. Why are we still here? Eat this whisper, a wafer of our kindness. Lean your lobe over and place it on the ground. It is best to reach back into the vacuum and shut off your own devices. Black them out until you are melted down, tucked in, eager, ready to be threaded out, taken once again into our palms. Who better than Elijah to be consoled here and now? He runs away and whines, lists all the ways we've failed him, inches closer and closer to the edge of the cliff. Just cloak, just feathers, just such a minuscule human ear. Elijah, at this point, is kind of told to go and wait to some degree. And, you know, these storms pass by like hurricanes and earthquakes and giant winds. And then he's left with a whisper. And I think what's really interesting is there's this moment where we get to these two lines and there's a page break in the physical book. Here we are. Why are we still here? There's so much sonic cascading, you know, from in to out with the, the, the ER and the AR and the RE all broken by this open Y, which is quite like the mouth of the cave. And then after that, you have eat this whisper, a wafer of our kindness. It's these S's and these ERs that almost mimic whispers, at least in, in the way in which, you know, we move our mouths in the English language. Like I sort of organized the poems, like the ones that are explicitly related in relationship with like a narrative arc in the Bible, I I purposefully have left them sort of in chronological order because that mirrors the way the the order that they were written as well. Because I was sort of just like working through 
um, the stories chronologically and sitting with them and then seeing what sparked. It was, this is the one that probably gets like taught the most or talked about in Sunday school the most or preached on the most. Like this idea of God not being in the storm, but being in the whisper, not being in the hurricane, but being in the whisper. That concept was the one I was most familiar with. So this story in the sequence comes right after Elijah has just spent like many days in the desert. He's like almost given up uh, multiple times and the angels of the Lord have like have come to him. Prior to going to the desert, he has this major confrontation with the prophets of Baal and with the person who's trying to kill him. Like, and you know, God basically like, there's this very public display of God's power and presence and favor where, you know, the prophets of Baal are like trying to conjure uh, magic essentially and nothing happens you know and there's definitely problematic parts in the story as well like you read there's this one kind of like somewhat throwaway line in at the end of that section where like 400 of Baal's you know all of the prophets basically are slaughtered on the mountain after that so it's like okay that's um disturbing and then in this story like i was reading it again just now and it's like oh elijah left his servant he left his servant there and he went on a day's journey looking at that going okay who's that guy you know (laughs) why why did he get left in you know beersheba and judah and elijah went on this day's journey into the wilderness he basically wants to give up and die under this bush and the angel of the lord comes to him gives him food and says keep going and then he goes 40 days and 40 nights and then arrives at the Horeb, the mountain of the Lord. So this is where we are. I decided with this, with a lot of the poems in here, this this is like those poems in the sense that it's also an acrostic. So the title goes down the edge of the the left-hand margin. It spells out Horeb, mountain of the Lord. So I had this sort of constraint that I was working within. I am, I, I think this poem was in some ways the surprising to me when I was writing it because it's one of the only ones where I'm actually trying to use like the voice of God, the plural and tripartite like voice of God um, speaking. And in some ways, like as somebody, as a kid who was raised in the church, um, that felt a little bit transgressive and, you know, to like speak in God's voice. Um, And so exploring this perspective of God looking at Elijah being brought through all of these signs of faithfulness, being like shown the power of God, and then to have God's plural voice like want to say to Elijah. And so I think that moment that you're pointing out here, we are here, why are we still here? is a a kind of turning point in the poem where it sort of is trying to capture in some ways like the the conversation within God (laughs) about God's interaction with humans and what what would God think of us. Sound and lyricism is always important to me as a poet and so I love that um, that aspect of the poem is resonating with you and definitely like I'm always thinking about the way a line sounds as I'm writing it. The image that comes right after that, eat this whisper as a wafer of our kindness, definitely is has meaning that is very literal but also very symbolic and is meant to pull from other imagery like a communion wafer, you know, is is the body of Christ, you know, that we're taking into ourselves and is now living inside of us. So for Christians, for Catholics, even more so than um 
Protestants, there's like a, incredible amounts of meaning that are connected to the wafer and then it also connects to other stories like where manna you know rains down from heaven and provides uh food for the israelites when they're in in the desert the sound of that whisper and wafer was curious to me and that was a really delightful discovery as i was like writing the poem to be able to see that the sound could sort of underscore and mirror the meaning this poem means to me symbolically and poetically that we're not alone and that that is maybe the deepest deepest lie that we're told that we're alone that nobody cares in this case this is like the culminating or one of the culminating moments where god is trying to reiterate that to this character and so for me uh, as I kind of like overlay myself onto Elijah, as I imagine the voice of God, God's plural voice, like speaking to me, that's the, I guess it's sort of like, that's the way that I'm chastising myself with the story, like pay attention. Um, the things that you think might be God or not God, they are actually just a storm or a hurricane or a fire. The things of the world that are like hammering us and that are are so like on the surface powerful and destructive and whatever are actually actually don't contain God within them but instead the thing that contains God's voice and that speaks directly to Elijah in the story is a whisper Get it through to you. 
The Lord, a resurrection of Horeb, mountain of the Lord. We question time's hurricane, our hair threaded to the cliff, until lobe and transom console closer, the vacuum winds in eager ground. We are many, our us, our own mountain. He's best bowed, tucked into here. Why here? This is of us. A last note melted down, then you're over it, on your own. Open Elijah year by ear. List Elijah and kindness. Eat inches better than Elijah. Rock Elijah for the last time. It's just, we are already in the human place. We are already air, what stands up still burning. They wait to hear, they run to the dry lean, the minuscule creek, cloak forsaken devices into failed takeaways. Isn't that the red way now? Back off, closer, bottomed out, down and such, just once again. Whose fears armed like you did, how tiny can be seismic. Come back, be reached in here again contemplative, small even, different. You can't get your mind out from under your head. Lord, oh Horeb, still move to pass black whispers. You know the crow notes, i.e. the holy temperature of ravens. How we've reached out to wafer time, shut the dark stone, the day always in a palm's edge. A feather. Just for context, you know, when I was younger, um, I was a columnist for the Leo Weekly here in Louisville, and I wrote a column as well, occasionally, very occasionally, like two or three of them for the Courier Journal. My focus, because at the time, right, the United States was at war both ideologically with Islam, uh, this was 2003 to 2006, war with quote unquote Islamic terrorism. And I think you know, that was a time when like compassionate conservatism and Republican Christianity was coming to the fore. And I was at a young, more naive, I'm still very naive, but at a young, more naive age and, and mental capacity, very interested in the practice of Christian imperialism through the practices of missionary work and of course, the arm of the government. So it's interesting to hear you kind of separate the political aspects that are intertwined in Christianity and modern living, as well as, you know, like a a deeply personal and subjective experience, which I find to be, you know, very Kierkegaardian. So in terms of that and your experience, I 
humbly admire your courage to remain in some sort of Christian organized religious practice in your life in Korea and China. Were you there to do missionary work or were you there because you wanted to be there? If you were there to do missionary work, can you kind of describe that and talk about how that works? Because I think it's a mystery to a lot of people who are not in the interweavings and the tendons of actual organized religious practice. So I, I lived in, I moved to South Korea when I was three years old. So I was born in the U.S. actually in Kentucky, but then moved to South Korea when I was three. So obviously that was not a choice that I made for myself. You know, I, my parents moved to South Korea and I moved with them. And then I lived in South Korea with the exception of one year in seventh grade. I lived in Hattiesburg, Mississippi while my parents were uh, doing some grad school work for a year. Um, but other than that, I went to school in Korea my whole life. Uh, I attended an international school. Uh, my parents are not missionaries um, and they did not go to Korea to do missionary work. Um, they're actually both teachers and my story is interconnected with missionary work overseas, but my direct, like the direct reason why I lived in South Korea and then why I live in China, why I've, uh, I've lived in South Korea as an adult as well is not for missionary work, but my grandparents are missionaries, were missionaries in South Korea, actually both sets of grandparents. So my mom's parents were missionaries in South America, and she is a third culture kid, a missionary kid who grew up in uh, Colombia, um, in Medellin. And then my dad is also, also a missionary kid. His parents were Salvation Army missionaries, and my grandpa taught uh, for 25 years at the Salvation Army Training College in Seoul, in Korea. So my dad also grew up in Korea his whole life. So that's one of the reasons why I ended up living in Korea as a little kid is because both of my parents, even though they're both Americans, they both grew up their whole lives overseas. And so when they married and started having kids, they wanted to live outside of the country and they both were teachers so they got a job at an international school um, and then raised us overseas and actually that's a major reason why I'm a teacher and why I'm an international school teacher now. Both of my siblings are also international school teachers. Actually all of my nuclear family live abroad as well. So even though we are a family of Americans, we are also uh, expatriates. My grandparents are missionaries, but I am, I am not and have never been and will not be. <laughs> so, I mean, I am definitely like uh, wrestling in some ways with that inheritance. My, my grandparents, I have deep, deep respect for their work. My, my grandpa on my mom's side was also a a professor in a seminary and was developing like essentially pastoral training materials for pastors who lived way, way far out in the jungles in Colombia so that they could get a theological education. So, um, and then my grandparents who were the Salvation Army uh, officers and were teaching in the training college were moved to South Korea post, you know, the Korean War to a South Korea that had been ravaged by 
half a century of Japanese occupation and by three years of Korean War. And I mean, they, they were uh, the work of the Salvation Army was to not necess- not to evangelize, but to, you know, in a traditional sense, but to really do humanitarian aid and train Korean officers in the Salvation Army to be able to do that work and to do it with love and care. And, you know, it's not a perfect uh, organization by any means, but it is one that I have deep respect for, even as I, you know, as I continue to grow in my understanding of the ways that missionary work and, you know, colonialism are and have always been intertwined. I also want to add that I... um I don't know. I was accused early in my teaching career. I taught at a, a Christian school and I had this kind of pretty evangelical um, head of department. And we had to write these uh, like biblical worldview, like questions to go around our units. And um, every single one that I tried to write, she she just kept saying, this isn't Christian. This is humanist. Um, you're a humanist. And I was kind of like, yeah. <laughs> I am. I mean, I guess in some ways. I'm not super interested in dogma or like, I'm not that interested in theology. I'm more interested in practice and in intuition and in spirit. And I will say like, I would not say that my like, my faith is academic in any kind of way. I really love people and I love the world and I love I love community I love art and those like it's within the space of relationship with other people and relationships to art that like God continues to reveal themselves to me my you know beliefs about uh you know people's bodily autonomy and desiring you know uh desiring for Palestine to be free and for people to stop suffering and for to stop hurting each other like those are all deeply deeply like connected to my belief in a loving God and um the desire that I have to see like that love I guess like play out in relationship um and in a transforming transformative way like for a better world Him in the time, he's always around. 
sign. Five crows the size of my torso, feathers like pupils or outer space, shined over a styrofoam cane's chicken container, balled up paper napkins, trash cans by the tennis court toppled in yesterday's wind. Five crows means one for each of us. I didn't see them at first on the hillside, my walk to work. It was early, a winter morning. A sky stippled white, not yet fully light. I had been asking for this. Some sign, some gust, some guess at what I should or shouldn't do with my life. The sudden mess of black birds. Of course, I counted the birds. I tape takeout cookie fortunes to bulletin boards. I burn incense, consult the sky, watch the way the lake plays its light. I quiz the ditch for what God might be saying. Today, the honey locust had already shook loose almost all of its seeds, and the sky was mostly static. Five crows hopped together on the grass, then mine took off, followed by the others, chicken tender in beak, french fry in claw. Ha ha! Ha ha! I'm listening! I yelled. The crows, already far out above the soccer field, disappeared into anonymous blue having already eaten, having moved on.
What three books are you currently reading or have you recently read? I'm not super good at the favorite uh, questions that involve favorites. I have too many things that I I like and appreciate and I'm, I'm pretty indecisive. I'm currently reading, I just finished um, a book called Invisible Planets, which is an anthology of contemporary Chinese science fiction. It's edited and translated by Ken Liu. And the subtitle of that one is 13 Visions of the Future from China. Really good. I dog-eared a bunch of stories that I'm hoping to teach uh, next semester in the class that I'm teaching. The book I'm currently reading is um, another anthology that he also edited that's called Broken Stars. It's a little bit more recent. Um, and that one is also contemporary Chinese science fiction in translation by him. So I'm, I'm currently reading a lot of Chinese science fiction, which is really cool. Uh, very, very cool. Bunch of really interesting stories in there. Um, and then my, uh, the book of poetry that I'm currently reading is called Alien Miss by Carlina Duan. It's her second book, and it's out with University of Wisconsin Press. So um, all <laughs> having to do with aliens in some kind of way. That's fun. It's a good way to start the new year. Um, Happy New Year, by the way. What is your favorite sandwich to make for yourself? Okay, <laughs> I don't normally make sandwiches for myself. Um, but if I was going to make a sandwich for myself... It would be definitely on bread that's toasted. I love like a sandwich in with like hummus and a bunch of veggies and cheese. <laughs> Basically, if it has cheese and toasted bread, I'm gonna love it. Basically, and mustard. I love mustard on a sandwich. But probably the the sandwich I make most consistently for myself, if I'm gonna make one, is probably just like peanut butter and jelly. But as beverages would go. Are you a wine, beer type of liquor or something else kind of person? I am someone who likes anything that's sparkling. So if it's like a sparkling water or sparkling like a gin, gin and tonic, that's what I like. So if it's sparkling, I'm probably going to like it. And if it's something citrusy, I'm probably going to like it. So I would love to know what your favorite thing about living in China is. As an adult, of course. So my favorite thing about living in China um, currently is, uh, and actually this was my favorite thing from the beginning. We've been here a year and a half. My favorite thing immediately, and I knew this was going to be my favorite thing when we were moving, is the public transportation. So I love riding the subway. I love walking through the city. I love being able to not own a car. I love, I love all of that. <laughs> That's one of my favorite things. And then exploring the city just through public transportation. So walking and finding new places and going new places in the city. And then also just walking around our area. Like I love just being able to explore around where we live um, on foot and not feel like a weirdo for doing that. <laughs> And I also love the noodles. I love bowls of noodles, <laughs> all the different kinds of bowls of noodles. I'm loving that. And then finally, I'm also loving, um, I'm learning Mandarin with a teacher. And I love um, being able to use the new things that I'm learning. And I feel like it's just 
I don't know, I get like a little jolt of joy every time I can say something in Mandarin. It makes me really, really happy. And I love also all the things I'm learning about Chinese culture and through like learning the language. So everything she's explaining to me about why certain grammatical things are the way that they are or things about tense. I don't know, I think it's super interesting and I love it. And I love sort of sharing that with my students too, many of whom are multilingual. So um, that's exciting just to kind of be in that beginner mind like space. It's also frustrating, but it's also really cool. I love it. And then the fifth question, you get one album to listen to for the rest of your life. What are you going to listen to? This question is really hard, and I'm just going to answer it from the perspective of, you know, at this moment in time, this is what I'm going to say. But if you ask me this question in, you know, six months, I might answer uh, differently. Although I'm going pretty old school with this answer because I, I think if you're going to listen to one album for the rest of your life, it has to be something that you've loved probably for a long time. So this is an album that I've loved since I was a freshman in high school. Um, it came out a couple years before I was a freshman in high school. So, uh, and it's um, Patty Griffin's Living with Ghosts. It came out in 1996, and I love it. I like love every single song on it, and periodically I will return to it now. But I think if I had to listen to one album for the rest of my life, that that would be that would be it. She's just such a genius.
Can't hear now.